0: Good morning. My name is Chase. If you don't know who I am, I'm the family pastor at Rolling Hills, and typically I... Uh, I find myself bouncing around from campus to campus, getting to experience all different types of, of uh, congregations, and I, it's always a joy and privilege to be here because I think this is family. Uh, this feels like home to me, and I'm so grateful to be here In as we continue our teaching series called Leverage. Now, um, over the past few weeks, we've been talking about this idea of leveraging, but I want to open up with just giving you a running definition of this idea of leverage, the leverage is the power to influence a person or a situation to achieve a particular outcome that you and I have things in our lives that we can use to influence other people, whether that be time, resources, or education that we can use to to leverage to, to impact other people in our lives. And over the past few weeks in this series, we've been talking about We we hope or our prayer is that it provokes some thoughts on your faith journey. No matter where you are on your faith journey, all of us would agree that we, we think it's important that we make our lives matter, that we some, somehow, some way, that we're pursuing a greater good, that our lives are making a difference. Nobody gets to the end of their life and says, boy, I, I hope my, my, my life amounts to nothing at all. Nobody wants to waste resources, education, or time. Nobody wants to get to the end of, end of their life and say, you know what, I really wasted so much time. I wasted my life. No, we want our lives to matter. In fact, no one remembers people who didn't use what they have to influence somebody else, meaning there's only two types of people in this world. There's either consumers or they're contributors. You know, the consumers are all about what can I get out of this situation? What can I get out of life? And then the contributors are always those people. What do I have that I can impact somebody else? What do I have that can leverage to make a deep impact on other people. And today, we're going to be talking about another aspect of leverage, one that probably doesn't make it at the top of your priority list when you think about leveraging something. When you think about influencing others, it's not at the top, but, but it could be the most profound way. We're talking about things that cause the most disruption in our lives but has potential to make the greatest impact in our lives. Before we jump into that today, I just want to pray for our time. Um, And then I'll tell you what it is we're talking about. Say, cool, let's pray. Father, we love you. We're grateful that as a church, we get to gather here together and hear a word from you that it's not my words, it's your words. And so God, we pray today that we are forever changed by your words. Your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. So God, we pray that you would use it to penetrate our hearts and whatever we're carrying in here, that we could leave it at your feet. And say, would, would you use me? Would you use this, this time to advance your kingdom? In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your copies of Scripture, we're going to turn to James chapter 1. and um, And I want to talk a little bit about James. Because today we're going to be talking about something that's really difficult. Meaning, we're going to talk about leveraging our difficulty and our pain. And before we jump into that, let's talk about James for a second because he has a unique perspective into the life of Jesus. And you're thinking, well, that's the 12 disciples, James. That's the James we're talking about. No, it's not. We're talking about the James, the brother of Jesus, James. So he has a unique perspective into the life of Jesus. You see, James wasn't on board with Jesus in his three years of ministry. Did you know that? He wasn't on board with him. He didn't believe that he was who he says he was. And, and by all accounts, uh, we, we see that tradition says that James even tried to seize Jesus and turn him into the authorities because he thought his brother was nuts. He thought his, his half-brother was crazy. And if we're thinking about James as a real person, which he is, this totally makes sense. This totally makes sense for us. And, and who knows what it was like to grow up with Jesus? Like, much less consider him your brother to be somebody else. Like, can you imagine what it was like? He was probably always a step behind Jesus in races. Like, he was probably, he was probably, I don't know, always getting in trouble when Jesus is never getting in trouble. Could you imagine what it was like to be the brother of Jesus? And then whenever he started his earthly ministry, he had crowds following him. And James is like, are you kidding me? He's speaking in riddles. He's saying crazy things. He's doing all these miracles. Like, this guy's nuts. So that's why he tried to turn him in. So he's thinking, well, of course, of course that, that makes. What would it take for you to believe that your brother was the son of God? What would it take for you to believe that your brother is the son of god so i'm asking the question what convinced james we're setting up we're going somewhere today but i want to look at james's life first what convinced him from going from not following to following what convinced him to go from seeing that his brother was the son of God? Was it that Jesus changed? Was it something that Jesus said? Well, was it, was it Jesus turning the water into wine or healing the blind or all those things? No, none of that changed James' mind. There's only one thing that changed James' mind because James was literally watching his half-brother die on a cross. Three days later, he rose again to eat fish with him. That changed it. The resurrection changed it. So not until after the resurrection did we see that James becomes a follower of Jesus. So at this point, James joins the the disciples... And Jesus, if you remember before his ascension, he said, I want you to wait on the Holy Spirit. And whenever the Holy Spirit comes, then begin your earthly ministry. The day of Pentecost happens in Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost happens and the Holy Spirit came down. And Peter stands up and he begins to preach and share the gospel with all these people. A couple thousand people became followers of Jesus that day. That day, the church was burst. in that moment. James joins the ranks. And so... Peter stands up, he gives his speech and then and then not shortly after people begin to follow Jesus and, and what we see is there are about 18 to 20,000 followers of Jesus Christians in the early church at this point in time in Jerusalem and then something happened. The Roman Empire was really worried that this was causing a disruption the Jewish leaders really didn't like what was going on so what happened was that Stephen got up to teach one day and defend Jesus, and they killed him. They martyred him. He became the first Christian martyr, and upon his his, his killing, the, pers- the church fled. They became the persecuted church because they were being persecuted all over Jerusalem. They fled Jerusalem, and as they were fleeing, they were sharing the gospel along the way, and in response, this is where we're going, In response to the persecution that the church was going through, in response to the difficulties, James wrote this letter to the persecuted church, to the fleeting church. Oh, by the way, if you didn't know about this, shortly after James penned this letter, he was attacked by an angry mob, taken to the top of the the temple in Jerusalem, thrown off the top of the temple. He survived. And then they went down to beat him with six sticks and stones until he was dead. And while they, were, while they were beating him, he was praying for those that were beating him. And you're like, well, that's a great way to open your message, Chase. <laughs> really inspiring. I do all that because I want you to know the context before we get into the words that were written. Because I think when we understand the words that are written from a God that was actually a real guy, who was the half-brother of Jesus, who was writing to the persecuted church, then it puts in perspective where we're going today. So James opens up this letter and he writes to the persecuted church, James chapter 1, verse 2. He said this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. What? He's writing to the persecuted church, by the way. Verse 3, Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom... You should ask. Who ask God? Who gives generously without finding fault, and will give? It will be given to you. Verse six. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like the waves of a sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. You know, I, I look at that passage. As James opens up and he's writing to the persecuted church. and I, I think the question is, we, we can all agree on, on one degree or, or another that our, our difficulties are different. The difficulties of the early church was very much diff, different than our difficulties today. These were men and women who were suffering because of the choice that they made to follow Jesus. And the question that usually comes after we hear things like this is, why? Why? Why does it happen? There's a deep theological question, the foundational theological question that we first have to address before we can talk about leveraging our pain. It comes like this. If we have a good and benevolent God, if we have a sustainer of life God, then why does he not eliminate pain and suffering in this world? And as Christians, we have a hard time with this because we find it troubling. And if you're an atheist, maybe you know an atheist, this is where they draw the line. There's no way that, that this God, that you claim to be God, can allow pain and suffering in this world. And to answer the question, we first have to ask this. Would a good God eliminate pain and suffering? Not just any God. Would a good God? C.S. Lewis addresses this in a book that he wrote, The Problem of Pain. And in it, he argues that humanity not, doesn't desire so much a good God, but a kind God. Meaning kindness cares not whether its objects become good or bad, but provided only that it escapes suffering. I don't care if you're good or bad. Just I just want you to be kind. Just don't don't allow suffering in this world. And he he would say, Lewis would say, we want not so much a father but a grandfather in heaven. How many of your parents? Any grandparents in the room? Okay. So here it is. We, I, I'm a parent. And Kit, you know, whenever we're at home, we're trying to, like, discipline, right and wrong, coach, guide and a direct. And so that's home. That's dad. And I send her off to grandparents. And what happens? It's like spoiled. And what happens when they send them back? You have to redo everything that you sent them in the first place. And what he's saying here, you know, as, as people, we want we don't want a father or we want a grandfather in heaven. We want him to just be that kind of kind and spoil us. And Lewis suggests this. He says, True, a, a truly loving father would rather see the loved one suffer much than be happy and despicable or no longer close to him. In other words, a good God may not eliminate pain and suffering from this world because, because it's used to accomplish a meaningful end. There's purpose in it. And if God knows more about our circumstances than we do, if, that, if God desires good from us, then perhaps he also uses those painful circumstances to a better end, maybe more than we can imagine. You know, Could it be that God wants to use our pain to help us grow? And no matter the reason in the room, I can spend the next 20 minutes talking about why. I can talk about sin in this world. I can, talk, I can just go through a list of things. Here's the reality. Whenever you leave this room today, pain and suffering does not stop. That won't help us, will it? Like pain, you, it's unavoidable. We're going to experience pain, and we're going to experience—we have no choice in the matter— But we do have a choice on how we react. We do have a choice on how we use that pain. We do have a choice on how we go about our different experiences. The question is this, what will you choose to do with your pain? What will you choose to do with your pain? James opens up this letter and he opens up by saying, consider it pure joy. Joy? Are you kidding me, James? Like I can think of so many more things that bring me joy. Puppies, James like have you ever seen a puppy before that's pretty joyful or a good meal i don't know or maybe a laughing baby those things bring me joy oh what about this in the midst of our heat wave in tennessee what about just a 72 degree weather bright sunny skies maybe some a little bit overcast maybe a little bit of breeze and a brisk walk through our neighborhood saying hi to our neighbor that's joyful like i get that but not persecution not illness, not family crisis, not a loss of a job. None of those things bring us joy. And I imagine as they're reading this letter to the early church, they're thinking, what? They're so they're so confused ab- about it. But he's not talking to the faint of heart. He's talking about people who are in the middle of a mess. And what he doesn't say, he doesn't tell believer that you should be joyful for them. Don't be joyful for the circumstances. We know it's difficult, but be joyful in it. You see, joy doesn't mean that mean happiness. Happiness is temporary, but joy can be found in all circumstances. And then, then James kind of shifts gears here. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. There's something attached to it, like you're growing. And, and here's what we choose to believe. Here's what we believe about our pain is that we all... We, we know that there's a level of, of holiness attached to our pain because in our pain, we, we begin to, to be more dependent on God. Romans 3, Romans 5, Paul, the Apostle Paul writes this, And if we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Wow. Then James shifts gears a little bit. He said, okay, he speaks to the understanding of our difficulty. Like, like, if you have a hard time with the difficulty you're going through, then, then all you have to do is ask. He says, if any of you at, lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Here's where we find our purpose, because wisdom leads to understanding our purpose. If we don't understand, we as the early church understood suffering and they had to leave what they've always known, their jobs, their security, their family, their friends, um, just different, their, their comfort in life. They had to leave it. And in fact, I, I, I choose to believe that they're probably looking for where their next meal is going to be to feed their kids. Look at it from that perspective. But here's what they did. Their purpose was greater than their difficulty. Their purpose was greater than their difficulty. Meaning our pain is meaningless without finding purpose in it. But when we discover our purpose, what happens? Our faith blows up. Who are the people in your life that have leveraged pain to bring glory to God? You probably can think of somebody right now. Like who are those people that that leverage their pain to, to bring God glory, but also to influence somebody else? Immediately my mind goes to a lady like Sherry Akers. Sherry's the mother-in-law of one of our staff members, and, and she spent years and years and years caring for her sick mother. Her mother couldn't care for herself, so she took time to care for her sick mother. Her mother passed away. Six months later, her husband survived a brain aneurysm. And that was like four weeks ago. And now she's caring for her husband just after six months of not caring for her Mom, and we we asked her, are you okay? How's it going? And her response wasn't why. Her response was, why does God allow me to go through this? You know what her response was? I am thankful that God prepared me through the caring of my mother to care for my husband. Praise God. What? It's in the moments like these, we're thinking, that's staggering. We don't understand that. Or a guy like Tim Burke who battled cancer for years and years and years. Last year, he passed away. But you know what he did? He leveraged his cancer to bring glory to God. He leveraged his cancer to tell anybody he could about Jesus. And if you can go to his Facebook page now, he still has it up. There's videos documenting uh, documentary his, his story. His story of, of his cancer story and, and sharing Jesus with others. Not, not that he wasn't going through difficulty, because in those videos, he tells you that he's, it's hard. But he also shares Jesus through those circumstances. And also, I get to look. I have a sneak peek into the lives of his kids who are now juniors. Who won't, their dad won't get to see them graduate, go to prom get married or any of those things. But what I saw Tim do was make video after video and letter after letter and write to them and say, Jesus matters. Like, you're going to go through stuff. I want you to put Jesus first. And this year, those, those two are going to go on a trip to Moldova to care for orphans. Like, I saw him leverage his pain for the glory of God and to impact others. What happens when someone's faith and trust in God in the midst of suffering, what, what happens to your faith? I believe it blows up. It's stories like these that gives us hope. It's stories like these that deepens our faith and lets us know that there's greater purpose in the face of opposition. There's greater purpose in the face of difficulty. It's stories like these that we hear from people in the life of our church that inspires us to live out our faith. But I'm not naive because I know how tough it is. I know how tough it is to go through, and you may be going through something right now. And, and whenever our, our daughter was about eight weeks, ago, eight weeks old, we, we received a diagnosis of a rare liver condition. And, and every time we go back to the doctor, we're always thinking, this could be the worst. This past week, even, we had to take our daughter to another checkup on Friday. And, and I was, here's what literally was going through my mind, if I'm just being honest with you, because I was thinking, if we got bad news and I have to preach today, what would this look like? Because there's one of two things that we could do with our difficulties. There, we, we could either spiral into depression, addiction, or apathy, or we can use it to make a greater impact for God's kingdom. There's only one or two things that we can do with our difficulty. And I look, at, I look at these situations and thinking, man, our difficulty should not define our potential, should it? Meaning, sometimes we're really good at looking at our difficulty and seeing the roadblocks we see how the hard work it's going to take we see the painful experiences and i get it we see the painful experiences we see the boundaries instead of seeing the opportunities and you look at a, a lady like sherry and a man like tim who, who could have literally said i give up like this is all for nothing i give up on life they didn't they said how can i use my pain to bring glory to god how can i use my pain to impact somebody else's do you allow your difficulty to bring glory to god just because you're Going through difficulty, and I think this is a mistake we often find, and, and I've been there. Just because we're going through difficulty does not mean we're not in the center of God's will. Because God uses our pain for his purpose. I look at a guy like the Apostle Paul who was writing to the, church in the Corinthian church. And he was actually listing out to the Corinthian church all the things that he suffered for the sake of the gospel. Do you want to hear just a few of those? It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and he says this, I've been in prison, I've been flogged, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I've had 40 lashes, three times beaten with a rod. Once I was pelted with stones, three times I was shipwrecked. That's bad luck. Spent the night in, open, in the open seas, been constantly on the move, been in danger from rivers and bandits, fled the Jews and the Gentiles, been cold and hungry, If anybody has a right to to boast about their commitment to Christ, it's, it's him, he said. But he said this, but if I boast, I boast not in the things that show my weakness. Why? Because in my weakness, he is made greater. And we're thinking, well, Paul, good for you. Well, shortly after that, he has a conversation with God. And he says, can you just remove a little bit of this from me? Like, this is a thorn in my flesh. Can you just remove it from me? And the Lord responds to him in this way. It's really profound. It says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. See, God's work in me is greater when I'm weaker because in my weakness, I rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to help me through it. He says, I want you to understand your purpose. Your purpose comes to comes wisdom, and now that you understand it, here's what I want you to do. Don't doubt. Don't doubt what God is doing in your life. Don't be like the waves of the sea that are blown and tossed by the wind. And, and I can't help but think, that does, G, does, does James kind of remember a story of his brother? Do you remember the story whenever the disciples were tossed by wind and waves? They were, they were out in the, the middle of the, the lake, and And they were in the middle of a storm and they were afraid and all of a sudden they see this figure walking on water. They think it was a ghost and this ghost calls out to them and Peter's like, oh, that's probably Jesus. Hey, Jesus, can I come out there? He said, sure, come on. So he takes a step of faith. He begins to walk on water towards Jesus. And then what happens? He looks around him. He sees the circumstances. It was overwhelming. He was fearful. He was in danger for his life, at least he thought, and he began to sink. And in his desperation, here's what I love, in his desperation, he called out. He said, Lord, save me. Jesus was immediate response. He reached down. He picked him up. He brought him back into the boat. And what did the disciples do? They worshiped Jesus in the midst of the mess. Why this story? What was Jesus doing? What was he trying to tell the disciples? I can't help but think that Jesus was preparing his disciples for ministry here on this earth. That they would encounter situations that would be overwhelming and painful. They would, they would be in situations that were dangerous for them. But they would require, it would require complete trust in Jesus Jesus was helping his disciples to build the church in the face of opposition. And as a result of the early church living out their faith in the midst of difficulty, we are here today. It's because those guys decided, you know what? I don't care what we go through because, it, because the gospel is worthy of my praise. The gospel is worthy to spread. And as a result of their faithfulness and their journey and their difficulty, we sit here today in these seats see, the church grew, not because it was easy, but because in the middle of their pain, people praised Jesus. You know, every year we go to um, a pastor's conference. We have a nonprofit called um, Justice and Mercy International. And every year we have the opportunity. So we go down to the Amazon, and I made a joke. It's not the Amazon Fulfillment Center in Lebanon. It's actually the Amazon um, jungle. And so we go there. And, uh, and we have a couple of times a year where we go do a pastor's conference. Um, and thank you for your giving because because of your giving, we're able to do things like that and, and train these pastors. And, and uh, I went in February. Jason's going in July. And we get to go and train these jungle pastors, literally in the middle of the jungle, rowing their canoe to our, our pastor's conference. It's kind of bizarre, but it's really cool. And, and so a couple years ago, we heard a story of a, a guy named Pastor Aramar. Pastor Aramar Is such an incredible guy, but a couple years ago he went through a tragedy. And you may have seen this story before, but if you haven't, um, this is gonna, if you have, I wanna do a follow up after this story. But Pastor Aramar took his circumstances and used it for something really powerful. And I'll follow up with that story in just a second. Let's watch his story.
1: estamos aqui na Ilha da Trindade, vamos para dois anos, né? Aqui na comunidade Boa Esperança, é aqui na Ilha da Trindade. Para nós assim que sempre nós já fomos acostumados, né? Morar nas ilhas, para nós é um, uma tranquilidade. É ver o Rio Amazonas, conhecer outras pessoas, famílias, evangelizar também. As pessoas que precisam do evangelho, que, que precisam ouvir a palavra de Deus. Mesmo que tenha as dificuldades, mas nós estamos aqui, felizes, alegre, de estar fazendo o trabalho do Senhor.
2: Sábado com as irmãs pela manhã, na consagração que a gente se todas as irmãs vêm.
1: Te ri muito, chora muito, porque estamos juntos, passando pela mesma dificuldade, pela mesma situação de cada um. A dificuldade, para nós, um é, é tempo da enchente né, que sempre alaga e a dificuldade fica grande. É onde também aqui, nesse lugar, nós, como você já sabe da história, passamos por um, uma prova tão forte. Eu saí para ver uma malhadeira, olhei meu filho, estava na cama, dormindo eu vim, né? Abracei ele, foi. Voltei. Ele veio me encontrar. Eu abracei ele e disse: Filho, eu vou fazer um mingau bem, bem gostoso para você. Ele já engatinhava, tinha 11 meses. Já com 11 meses. Nesses minutos, né? A minha esposa ela diz assim: Cadê o azaf? Né? Já estava um silêncio dentro de casa. Aí eu deixei a mamada dele, né? E saí correndo nos quartos, entrei nesse quarto, entrei nesse outro, entrei nesse e o último foi esse. Quando ele caiu na água, né, nós sabemos que ele tinha caído mesmo, veio um grande desespero, um grito de socorro, gritando por socorro, os moradores chegaram, os irmãos da igreja, vieram de outra comunidade, fomos chegando e fomos procurar. O Azaf e o corpo dele foi resgatado a partir das 12h45 e da quando nós vinhamos de Tequateara, do sepultamento dele como lhe falei né, parecia que era um sonho mas avistar esta casa é... a tristeza nós tomou conta foi um momento mais triste que nós passamos na nossa vida
2: quando eu fiquei, quando eu perdi meu filho, eu orava assim, Senhor, envia alguém para nos ajudar, porque passamos quando você perde uma uma pessoa como aconteceu com a gente, é, a gente fica muito, muito abatida e o Senhor ele ele ouviu minha oração, porque sempre ele não deixou a gente só e o Senhor Preparou vocês para nos ajudar. vocês não esqueceram da gente, vocês nem conheciam a gente, vocês... A Conferência de Pastores, para mim, foi uma, uma benção, porque eles, ao chegar lá, eu cheguei de uma forma assim, de cabisbaixo, sem força, entendeu, eu não tinha força. Porque eu tinha perdido, meu filho estava fazendo oito meses e eu não, não tinha como reagir. E eu chegar lá, o Senhor foi, foi as ministrações, o Senhor foi ali alimentando, me dando força. O Senhor tratou muito comigo naquele lugar e eu voltei sendo outra pessoa.
1: <risos> Porque eu quero, eu digo para vocês que nós chegamos ali numa situação cabe baixa. Para mim, a conferência foi tudo para a gente também. E eu vim com uma visão diferente de evangelizar esse povo mesmo. né? De evangelizar, de conquistar para Jesus mesmo esse povo.
2: Enviou vocês para nos ajudar. De haver essa intimidade quando nós fomos para a conferência. E o meu coração se alegra muito. E e saber que o Senhor não esquece da gente aqui no meio dessa ilha que a gente está. Charlie is severe when the way is rough and steep.
0: So, will you put that picture up for me? <clears throat> so, this is this year, this, this February at, at the pastor's conference. And if you see that um, Pastor Ermar is right there at the, the bottom, he's kneeling in the middle. And if you see that his wife is right behind her, him, and she looks different, doesn't she? She's pregnant. And um, her son, Samuel, they're going to call him Samuel is due on the day that their other son passed away. Um, And and this year, we had a conversation with Pastor Ermar, and he was like, you know what? I I asked God why. I I was so frustrated because God literally told me that my son was going to be a missionary all over the world and share the love of Jesus with everybody everywhere. And he said, you know what? God is fulfilling His promise, because that's exactly what my son is doing in his death. He's sharing the gospel all over the world, in England, in Germany, all throughout the Amazon, in in the United States, we're hearing his story, and he's sharing the gospel all over the world. It's stories like that that give us a unique perspective into our pain and our suffering. It's stories like that that lets us know that there's, there's purpose in our pain. Last night, um, I was just got home, and, and uh, Courtney, my wife, had just read something that I thought would be uh, very appropriate for us to end with this message today. And it's by an author named Holly Girth, and she writes about suffering. And she said, "When we think we have to take what we think what we have to take what is broken and make it perfect in order for it to be used God, by God and bless others." God thinks in a completely different way, however. He took what was perfect, his son, and he made him broken in order to bring us healing. God sees purpose in our brokenness even when we don't. And he can use it to bring forth beauty that blesses those around us. There's pain. There's purpose in the pain that God, that it shouldn't define our potential. Let me pray for us, Father. I'm so grateful that we gather here as a church to hear a word from you. I pray that it's a word of hope. I know that there's so many people in the room that have been through pain and suffering, that are going through pain and suffering. God, I pray that you speak a word of hope to us, that you would say that, hey, there is purpose in your pain. I'm going to use it. I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to fulfill it in you. Don't fret because I'm going to use it. And God, even though that we may go through some pain and suffering on this world, that we look forward to the hope that is heaven, that we are perfectly made new after this life. And while we are here, our goal and our responsibility is to make much of you. And so, God, I pray that we use leverage our pain in order to do that. God, I pray that we leave here today with hope. God, you are such a good God, and we are so thankful. Praise you in the middle of our pain.